2: People in the traditional art world who are, you know, around art their entire lives, this or that, had never heard of me two months ago, and yet I had millions of followers, and so millions of people did know about me, but these people who are, you know, sort of traditional art world, I guess, I think there's still a little bit of like, wait a second, who's this guy?
1: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Milman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, digital artist Mike Winkleman, AKA Beeple, explains what an NFT is. Digital
2: art is no different than any other type of art.
0: It's just done on a computer. People is Mike Winkleman, who describes himself as a graphic designer from Charleston, South Carolina, who makes digital artwork, short films, VJ loops, and who has, since 2007, created and posted a piece of digital art from start to finish every day. He's never missed a single day, even when he got married and even on the days his wife gave birth to their two children. He aptly calls his project Every Days. Last month, the first 5,000 digital images from his everyday's project was put up for sale at Christie's as an NFT, a non fungible token. In the wild and record setting auction, Beeple's NFT fetched a whopping $69,346,250, and he personally walked away with over $53 million in his own bank account. While Beeple has successfully created graphics for corporations including Apple, Nike, and Coca-Cola, and performers such as Justin Bieber, Katy Perry, Nicki Minaj, and Eminem, as recently as six months ago, Beeple had not sold a single piece of his self-generated digital art. In our interview today, we're going to talk about what an NFT actually is, how on earth he was able to sell his work for nearly $70 million, and why he is still driving what he describes as a fucking Toyota Corolla piece of shit. <laughs> Mike Winkleman, welcome to this very special live episode of Design Matters at the 2021 On Air Festival.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm so like honored. I've been like a huge fan of Design Matters for many, many years. So it, it is a super, super huge honor to talk. I do have one correction there. The Toyota that I have is actually our good car. The pieces of oh. car are actually <laughs> a, a Matrix Oh, I guess that is a Toyota. I guess we have two Toyotas. <laughs> we have, actually we just got it assessed for like insurance and it was assessed at eight hundred and thirty dollars, the car.
0: Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> it's good that you clearly believe in some sustainability here. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, you grew up in North Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, a town yep. of 5,000 people. Your dad was an electrical engineer. Your mother was the longtime director of the Fond du Lac Senior Center. Yep. Is it true that your dad first taught you how to program?
2: Yeah. So in the fourth grade, our teacher um, recommended we get a computer. And so this would be like, I'm 39. So this would be about 1991, maybe 1990. And so from the time we got that computer, it was definitely like, oh, this is the thing, like this computer, like this is like the object. This is like, I was immediately just sort of like, you know, just fascinated with with this computer and the possibilities that it it sort of like presented. And so when I was in like fifth grade, he taught me like basic programming in it. Um, And so I made little like, choose your own adventure things for you to have to type in something, and then you'd be able to sort of like, you know, see this story come out all like text based and everything. Um, And so yeah, that was some of the first sort of like, you know, activities that I did on on a computer was creating little creative like programs. Um, very, very simple, like little things.
0: Your mom has said that growing up, you like to draw and write and direct fun movies with your friends. What kinds of things were you making?
2: For school, there was one Star Wars thing we did in like seventh grade, you had to like, explain volcanoes or something. And we did this Star Wars thing in the sandbox and recorded it. But In college, that's where I really started making sort of like short films with like my friends and stuff like that. And they were very narrative, very sort of like weird kind of things, but they were super, super different than the things that I do now because they were really just, you know, actors and short films and and stuff like that. So definitely my work has taken a number of sort of like areas of focus over the years.
0: Your mom has said that you weren't very good at drawing at that point in your life. Wow. Thanks, mom. Thank Wait, you, no, mom. no. She, she's she gone further. She's actually said that you're still not good at drawing. So curious to know what you think of her opinion.
2: Wow. is my biggest fan. Thank you, mom. <laughs> biggest fan. <laughs> no, she's actually right. I'm super bad at drawing. Like I definitely, I don't like drawing because you can't, undo. And I really, really like the undo function on computers. That is a big, big piece of like, the way I work is that ability to just be like, mm, I'm just gonna try anything, no consequences, because I know I can just undo it. Versus with a drawing. you start, oh, Okay. Oh,
0: there you go.
2: Oh, I just screwed up the whole thing. Uh, you know what I mean? You can just screw up the whole thing. And then you just screw and it's like And I don't like.
0: That. Yeah. So and it could be very time consuming to have to do things over and over. I feel the same way. I used to do everything with colored pencils and fabric and textiles. And it's been hard to go back after being able to make art on a screen.
2: Well, to me, it makes it harder to sort of experiment because you're sort of you're in your mind. You get kind of locked into like, oh, this is going pretty good. I don't want to screw it up you don't want to take as many chances. And so that to me is where it it kind of like, why having that undo function, it allows you to really sort of like take chances.
0: You went to Purdue University and graduated in 2003 with a computer science degree. What were you expecting to do at that point in your career?
2: um so i went to school really wanting to make uh video games i I thought you know uh, that's what i want to do from the time i got that the computer i really love video games I was like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna make video games and so as soon as i got to school and started you know going through the degree i realized about a year or two in uh that i was spending all of my time all of my free time making little short films making weird digital art stuff like that and so i realized that's probably what I actually want to do because nobody's asking me to do it. I'm just doing it. So I kind of got through the degree and sort of, you know, then I got a job doing web design, which was kind of a a sort of mix of art and sort of like some sort of like tech. Um, And then from there, really just started putting all of my sort of real energy into my own sort of like personal work and, and developing, you know, skills around doing exactly the type of work that I wanted to do.
0: So would it be safe to say that you are essentially self-taught as as a designer and an artist?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took um, one or two. I think I took two art classes in high school and I took one sort of semi art class in college. But that is really like, you know, sort of all of the like training that I have.
0: You chose the name Beeple after a toy in the 1980s, whose nose lit up in response to light and sound. And I see that tucked away over there on your sofa. But that particular people, I understand, was taken from you when you were 10 and given to your grandmother. And then you somehow got it (laughs) back. it's
2: It's actually worse than that.
0: Okay, let's hear the whole
2: story. My family gave it to my grandma. Why? It was just like, I don't know. Like, it was like a birthday present or something, I think. And, and you know, and I was like 10 or 11 at the time. Like, I was, you know, much older than sort of toys like that. And so we gave it to her. And then it was always kind of like, you know, at her house. And they lived in, in Upper Michigan. It was always at her house. We'd go visit. And there's the thing. And then at some
0: point, <laughs> I just took the- You stole it. <laughs> You stole a toy from your grandmother. I stole it from my grandpa.
2: I stole it from my grandma. (laughs) Was she upset? I don't think she she cared at that point. It was kind of like, it was just sitting on a bed in a room and it was just kind of... (laughs) (laughs) Big reveal. Uh,
0: Beeple. uh, Beeple thief. I didn't didn't start out
2: on a good note here with this uh, Beeple saga.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least the truth is out. You don't let people make their own decisions about it.
2: Freaking asshole.
0: <laughs> so amidst all the corporate work you were doing, which you don't talk about very much, you have know, actually referred to the work you've done at Apple as like Apple crap. <laughs>
2: okay, I am not, sure. not sure where I referred to it as Apple
0: crap. Well what you might have fuck? actually said That's said actually, shit. Probably. Actually, you said I think you said apple shit, but I was I was trying to be kind. Um you started a self-initiated project in May of two thousand and seven. Tell me why don't you like to talk about? you have no corporate work on your website as far as I can tell, unless it's hidden somewhere. I couldn't find any of the Apple work, any of the Nike work. The only reason I know about and have seen the Louis Vuitton work is because Louis Vuitton has talked about it and and posts about it. so So why don't you talk about that work?
2: Honestly, it's because uh, a couple reasons. <laughs> One of the biggest is probably literally just laziness because it takes a bunch of time to like gather it and sort of put it in proper context. And I'm already putting out so much crap. I already feel like I'm spamming people with work already that it's like, here's this other stuff. And to be honest, it really, it doesn't feel like mine. It's mm-hmm. never because it's it's somebody else's. They gave me money to do what they wanted and I did it. Like, that's it that's kind of how I view client work. And I sort of I wanted them to be happy. And I wanted it to turn out good. But it's their thing. So I've never really had that much of a super strong connection to a lot of the like, paid work that I've done. It's all oh, I've always been way, way more interested and vested in the sort of like, people work the like personal work where I was completely calling the shots. And some of the a lot of the like, client work I'm proud of. But again, it's like, you have to give permission and blah, blah, blah. So it's just, it was always kind of just one of these, like, I did it. It was fun. It was good, whatever. And I don't really need feel a huge need to sort of like, you know, kind of show it from there.
0: So you started your, your first big self initiated project in May of 2007, which you now call every days because you do one drawing from start to finish every day, which you are still doing 14 years later today, I believe is day 5093. Well, I'll take your word. Okay. (laughs) Now, we were talking a little bit about this in the green room before we started the interview. I do a 100-day project every year with my grad students, and at least 20% of them can't make it to day 100. I have a new class of students embarking on their 100-day projects at the moment. Today is day five for them. I think they may be interested in hearing how you've managed to stay motivated for over five thousand days.
2: Um. After a while, it will not be a matter of motivation. The momentum will carry you. I don't feel like it most days because it's sort of like I'm tired. I'm. I've got a million other things. Like, it, 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 You know, I, I've already spent. 14 hours in front of the computer. I'm not exactly like, oh, you know what I'd love to do? Spend three more hours in front of the computer right now. But once you get a number of days under your belt, it gets easier and easier, and the project will just sort of carry you. The biggest piece to it, though, is going in with realistic expectations for what you can get done in one day, which is very little. It's very little. You are not going to produce a masterpiece of one day. You are gonna produce a sketch. And that's all it is. And you look at it like that. And you look at it as like anything is better than nothing. And you go into it with very realistic expectations. That is what what is going to keep you doing it over a very long period of time.
0: I know you posted on your wedding day, you posted on the day both of your children were born, even when your wife was in labor. When did that feeling of no choice but to do it kick in?
2: um it kicked in pretty quick like very very quickly that it was sort of like i'm gonna do this and then it just got stronger and stronger that it's like i'm not gonna miss any days if, if i can if i can all help it like if there's which i can you know unless i'm paralyzed or some real real bad stuff happen i can definitely do this uh, because again it, i could do it in one minute I, I if it came to it if i got hit by a boss I'm going to just post a picture of a sphere or a cube, and that's it. It's done. And it's kind of like, I don't know what you want. I got hit by a bus that day. Like, again, expectations, realistic expectations. So, yeah, it was it, it was pretty serious for me pretty quickly.
0: Your first post on May 1st, 2007, was a small sketch of your Uncle Jim. You did this to try to become a better illustrator. The first year is all drawings. Yep. After that first year of drawings, you moved to digital art and created with programs like Cinema 4D and Octane. Yep. What made you decide to transition to the digital world?
2: So I had always, after that first year, I noticed that I like tried a bunch of techniques that I'd never tried before. with art, Like, like little things that like... <laughs> The average person would probably be very obvious, was not obvious to me, like, okay, I could draw something and then scan it in and, like, color it on the computer. Like, that to me was like, oh, my God, this guy never thought of that. Like, so there was just a bunch of, like, technique things that I sort of, like, saw a huge improvement over that year. And I'd always wanted to learn a 3D program. I didn't know any 3D program, but it was always like, oh, man, that would be, like, the ultimate if I could learn, like, a 3D program. And so I was like, well, what if I use this everyday's concept to do uh, you know, a render a day um, using a 3D program, which at the time, like I'd never seen anybody do like that wasn't kind of like a thing or whatever. So that's what I started doing. And I saw very quickly that I was like learning this program, like because I was spending every single day, two to three hours learning the program. Pretty quickly, I realized that it was like, okay, this is a very, very powerful way to sort of like kind of trick yourself into actually just working a lot more than you would otherwise. Like that's really all it, it kind of really does.
0: You have a number of themes you return to and a range of characters that you use. Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Mickey Mouse, Kim Jong-un, Michael Jackson, Buzz Lightyear. Over the last two years, you seem to have a growing fascination with lactation. (laughs) Really? Back, <laughs> we had to go there. We had to go there. We, of course, okay. we did. Of course, We're we done. did. So, so why <laughs> those characters and why that subject matter?
2: I have no idea. I literally, the worst answer for that. I have no idea. You, this is that's for somebody shrink to figure out. I don't know, like, what is going on there, to be quite honest. I think there's a lot of like with a lot of those characters, there's in the scenes a lot of times. I think there's some sort of like power dynamic and Mm -hmm. there's, there's some like higher level concept of somebody sort of feeding something and sort of like having power over them or like them giving life or sort of like power to this other thing or some, them needing the other thing. And so that's been something that I've played with in a, a number of different things from these characters to, tech companies that's another thing that i'm sort of very interested in and, and kind of did a lot more work with before like the, the relationship between sort of like politicians people tech companies and sort of like the power dynamics between those i think is very interesting apparently i needing to express that through <laughs> lactation
0: <laughs> there are a lot of, <laughs> of boobs a lot of boobs <laughs>
2: I wish I had a better answer for you. Your guess is as good as mine.
0: Do you consider your work political
2: satire? I think a lot of it is, yeah. I think right now it is. And and so if you go back like three years, none of this stuff. There's no Kim Jong-un. There's no like it's very much more sort of like sci-fi and sort of like way more sort of like abstract and, and sort of completely different. So the stuff that I've done over the last, you know, two years, especially a lot of the stuff with Trump was very much sort of reacting to the just insanely stupid things he was doing on a daily basis and and sort of wanting to give some voice to that wanting to make some sort of like commentary on it. And I think it's it's to me interesting doing that within the context of these insanely powerful, you know, 3d tools that we didn't have before. Like this is just like stuff that was not possible even 10 years ago, The, the speed at which I'm able to sort of like make these images.
0: In going through the very very early work, I came across some things about art homos and black dildos and. There's some
2: bad shit there. So there's so, some definitely. Like, go on.
0: No, no, no. I was just wondering how you feel about that work now, and does that reflect? It's terrible.
2: It's terrible. There, there's there's plenty of things in the past there that are just like okay, that's just quite frankly very embarrassing, but where it's just kind of like. That is not me. That is just uh, not cool, not good. And so it's, you know, if people are offended by that, I, I am offended by it as well. And it's just kind of like uh, that is something that um, I, I very deeply apologize to anybody sort of offended by that. And, and that goes to all the pictures because I'm, I'm really never, ever trying to offend people. I am always trying to inspire and um, bring joy to people, make them laugh you know, the, the pictures are meant to be funny and they're meant to sort of like brighten your day. They're never meant to sort of like attack anybody or sort of, I mean, besides probably Trump, they're not meant to attack anybody or, or sort of, you know, cut anybody down. So yeah, th- those suck. But sort of the reason for not just taking them down is I want to sort of show this journey. I, I want to show that it's like, okay, that's not me now. This is this is a journey and everybody's on that journey. And everybody said dumb shit that they fucking regret and, and is not them. So, you know, that's what this is about. The, the Everyday Project is about improving over, you know, a long period of time and showing that improve.
0: Yeah, I think that there's something really interesting about watching an artist or anybody that creates anything evolve. You know, I'll listen back to my early podcast from 2005, and I am just horrified by the way it sounds and by my lack of empathy and my lack of curiosity and just my terrible questions and cliches. and, But I keep it up there and out there because, you know, this is how you grow.
2: Yeah. And I think it's important for people, especially young people, I see it like a lot of like conferences and stuff that I do. The, the question I get is, how can I be like you? And it's like, well, I can show you very easily. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take a lot of time. But like, Here's the entire life process. Look at how bad I was. Look at how much dumb shit I did before we, we got to a place where I was starting to do you know at least better shit. Um, and so I, I think showing the warts and all and, and you know the fuck ups, the mistakes. I think that's very important and I think it's something that can really sort of help younger people because we're, we're in a world where everybody's showing every day their polished best version on social media. That's not real like that. And and I think that getting into that mindset, especially for younger people, it's very like toxic. That's the only image of people you're seeing is perfect, polished uh, version. Yeah,
1: it's positioning. I
2: I think it's much more interesting to just show the whole thing, words and all.
1: Hey, y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In the Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. It'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the Making and Adobe Express for their support.
0: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Okay, let's talk about NFTs, non fungible tokens. I doubt there's a better expert to teach our audience exactly what an NFT is. So, can you, in in like two minutes, (laughs) if that, because we have such a limited amount of time to talk today, um, what exactly is an NFT?
2: Sure. So an NFT is really just sort of it uses the blockchain, it uses Ethereum blockchain, um, and it really is just sort of like a proof of ownership. It's very actually kind of simple in a in a way. It's, it's really just sort of proving ownership. And that ownership can be attached to a bunch of different things. In the case of my work, it's being attached to a picture, really just a JPEG to show this person can prove they are the only person that owns this jpeg and it's sort of like a again a certificate of of sort of ownership and authenticity that i made that and this person owns it and so in this way people are now able to sort of truly collect digital art in a way that they could not before because before this there was really no mechanism you just jpegs were out there and everybody had a copy and you know copies were everywhere and so It's the same thing that kind of gives Bitcoin value. Bitcoin has value because you can't just say, "Oh, I've got one Bitcoin. Copy, paste. Look, now I've got two Bitcoin." That's not how Bitcoin works, and that's why people Bitcoin is worth, you know, almost sixty thousand dollars is because you can't just copy and paste it and make more. Um, And so that's the same with these NFTs. So in the future, I believe NFTs will be applied to. All different things. I believe you'll have one for your house, your car, anything you want to sort of prove ownership. And people will have, you know, potentially thousands of these things to track a, b- a bunch of different real things and virtual things that they have.
0: Companies like Maker's Place or Super Rare or Nifty Gateway are the big players in selling NFTs. And last November, you sold your first NFT with a piece called Crossroads, and it sold for $66,666. Did this surprise you at the time? I mean, you hadn't sold anything. Um, It did not
2: really surprise me because I had seen how much other people were selling things, and so sort of the way I came to NFTs is people kind of like kept bugging me. Again, I was sort of very well known in the digital art space, had you know a couple million followers at that time. Again, this is like October just last year. Right. And so people kept hitting me up and being like, you know, you should check out NFTs. You should check out NFTs. And when I did, it was like, oh my god, like wait, you could sell a, a video file? Like, I didn't, I didn't think that was possible, much less for the prices people are paying. It's just like, oh my God, like, this is crazy. So, and I knew all of the people in the space. Like, it was like, oh, these are all like my colleagues, like, you know, other artists doing very, very similar work to like what I do. And so I did kind of know, it's like, oh, well, they're they're making some pretty good money here. I I might be able to make some money here. Like this feels like this could be a thing. And so I really went all in and just sort of immediately just kind of, this was like pretty laser focused on this space.
0: Shortly thereafter, a body of work you called the Complete MF Collection sold for $777,000. Then, um, <laughs> I know, the numbers they're are they're really big. big. <laughs> I'm not used to these numbers. They're, they're getting crazy. They're and they're crazy. getting bigger. Then on February 26th, Crossroads was resold on the secondary NFT market for $6.6 million, of which you got a 10% cut. Is there any relevance to these? six 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 seven 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 numbers and numbering
2: there is so that's something that again i didn't know before this but that that sort of like bidding patterns and sort of like numerology is a big piece of sort of the the crypto part of this because again this crypto is the like blockchain technology that sort of makes this possible And so 21, um, I mean, some more slightly immature, like 69 is like a big number in this space. And 420, there's a bunch of like sort of special numbers, 33. So there is kind of a lot of like numbers in this space. It is a very sort of like fascinating subculture. Like that's why you'll see those numbers a lot. Uh, People sort of like playing with numbers like
0: that. In December... Just a few months ago, you sold $3.5 million worth of art in one day. Was that when Christie's first was like, hmm, maybe we should get involved in something like this? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think it was it was pretty, pretty sort of like soon after that, that they approach or or Maker's Place sort of like convinced Christie's that this space had, you know, some value. And from there, Christie or or Maker's Place approached me and said, you know, would you like to do this? We've got this opportunity with Christie's. And obviously, I was like, you know, this is an amazing opportunity. I would absolutely love to do this. And so that's kind of, you know, how it it sort of came together.
0: Noah Davis, the specialist in post-war And Contemporary Art at Christie's noted that it's a really radical gesture to offer for sale something without any object, and we may as well lean into that. The expectations of the sale of your collage, your first 5,000 days of every day's square pixel that was 21,069 by 21,069 pixels— the The expectations were quite mysterious, and I believe the estimate going into the auction was unknown. It sold for sixty nine million three hundred and forty six thousand two hundred and fifty dollars after fees and so forth. You got fifty three million bucks. Congratulations. That's <laughs> life changing. <laughs> really yeah, yeah. incredible.
2: It is definitely insane. And you're still
0: not going to replace your car? Mike, you're not going to replace the damn car. No,
2: I actually no, we do have to replace the car. The car is definitely like super annoyingly like it's a, it's like a dune buggy at this point. It's like you get into it and it's like uh. Eh. So, yeah, we will replace the car, but to be quite honest, beyond that, like we're not going I'm not going to replace it with like a Lamborghini or something. We'll probably just get another like Corolla or something. I- I'm most interested in using that money to Make better art, like that. That's really the only thing that I'm sort of really, really interested in, and in sort of using the money for. Because anything that I can just buy, it's like well anybody can just buy that. To me, that's just not that interesting. Versus something that I have to make myself, that nobody, that I cannot buy. Those are the things that are interesting to me because you know it, there's work behind it. I can't just have it. I have to like work for
0: it. Someone named Medicovin had the winning bid and he brought the work in Ethereum. Is that how you pronounce it?
2: Yeah, he bought, he paid for
0: it. In in a cryptocurrency. This was also the first time that Christie's had accepted payment that way. You kept some of the cryptocurrency but converted most of your payment to U.S. dollars. Are you nervous about the cryptocurrency and, and the sort of constant fluctuations?
2: Uh, yeah, honestly, that's that's it. I'm actually pretty sort of like I, I was never honestly somebody who was like super into like crypto, like I had a little Ethereum, but it wasn't something that, you know, I, I was super, super, you know, sort of strongly kind of like invested in. And so, yeah, when we got the money, which which was crazy, too, because literally the, the auction closed Thursday morning by Friday night, it was com- the transaction was completely done. He had the artwork. I had all the money done, literally the next day. And so as soon as we got the money, it's like, it's in Ethereum. Ethereum was going up and down, you know, every time you would hit refresh, it's, it's you know, looking at the phone there, it's it's up or down, you know, three, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. And it's like, OK, well, this is moving pretty quick here. This is moving pretty quick. It's It's still quite volatile. I absolutely believe in it long term, but it was kind of like, OK, let's just. Put this into cash take a beat here i don't know what the hell's going on let's just kind of you know we might put it back into ethereum but like let's just chill for a sec here and kind of like get our bearings here before we you know go ape shit on anything
0: so i had to learn a lot about this world prior to our interview. So I started to do some reading about Medicovin and who he might be and what he's doing. And it seems as if he's also purchased earlier works of yours. He's bundled them together in a digital museum, locked them in a smart contract, And then fractionalized it into 10 million shares, which he sold. Yeah. And you've said that there's at least a decent chance he's going to do this with his $69 million acquisition of your work. And from what I understand, that's called DeFi or decentralized finance, which actually sounds a lot like what happens on Wall Street. Am I right? A hundred percent. Oh, good. I would say Yes. And so, yeah, everything you just
2: said is actually completely correct. And and a lot of people, to be quite honest, when they're sort of reporting on this, they're not getting it correct and they kind of fudge it a bit. So yeah, that's actually completely correct. And that was honestly not something I knew was even possible. So after he did the December sale, it was like, oh, so here's what I'm gonna do. And it was like, wait, what? What? I
1: didn't.
0: Okay, but you still, I didn't? you still own the copyright. You still own the word. copyright. I own the copyright
2: and to be honest part of the reason i didn't know you know that could be done is because nobody had done that okay. and so this was very new and he's kind of like i want to like you know take these very expensive works and make them available because in the past it's sort of you know kind of looking historically at art for a long time it was sort of like churches and stuff you would go to a church and and everybody could see the art and then it kind of changed to well if you want to see the art you need to be very very rich because a rich person is going to buy that and they're just going to put it in their house and then the world's never going to see it again. It's just in that dude's house. And so that that was part of the reasoning of, of him wanting to do this, is sort of making art a little bit more democratized again and, and sort of available to everybody. And this is a way that it could be done in a sort of like sustainable way where he's sort of able to sort of monetize that in a sustainable way to, to keep doing that. Um, and so it's definitely an interesting concept and it'll be interesting to see kind of where it goes from here.
0: One thing that I thought was interesting was the cut that you get versus what usually happens with galleries. Um, And I know that there's a television show now in development with some of your work. Have galleries been approaching you about representing you and are they willing to work with that same more generous cut to the artist than the gallery?
2: So I have, I have talked with some galleries. I've talked with some pretty big galleries, pretty, pretty big galleries. Um, I think there's still a little hesitation with kind of digital art. I think there's still a little gun-shy just because it's happening very fast. I mean, this is, again, uh, people in the traditional art world, that's what I think is really fascinating. The two worlds were so separate. People in the traditional art world who are you know around art their entire lives, this or that, you know, had never heard of me two months ago. Uh, Yet I had millions of followers. And so millions of people did know about me, but these people who are, you know, sort of traditional art world, I guess, had never heard of me. So I I think there's still a little bit of like, wait a second, who's this guy? What's this, what is this thing? Like, you know, still a bit of hesitation, but I I honestly think that's going to fade away very quick and and people are going to realize that digital art is no different than any other type of art. It has the same nuance, intention, color, form, technique, craft as as any other type of art. It's just done on a computer. But okay, everything we do is done on a computer now. So it's like, what is the difference here? So uh, I think it's really an exciting time. And, and I feel very humbled and honored to be in this position and, and really just wanting to sort of bridge those two worlds as, as kind of like best I can.
0: I read that you don't want to call yourself an artist because it sounds pretentious and douchey. Really still?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like people take their work way too seriously sometimes. And and that we've lost the sense of like fun and just like just creating just to create. Like you did when you were a kid. You just you didn't think about like what does this mean? How does this fit into the context of cultural blah, 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 you just made something and you just got out of your head and you just made the thing. And so that's that's where I would like to see art go back to a little bit. I'd like to push the needle just a tiny bit back to like, let's just create things to to just create things and use it as a a form of therapy, use it as a way to just express yourself. And it's for everybody. It's not just for for artists. And and so that's why I think the term has gotten very loaded and I think if we can just take things down a notch, everybody can be an artist.
0: As for your next steps, your website states that you are not stopping until you're in the Museum of Modern Art, and you're not stopping until you're kicked out of the Museum of Modern Art. Which would you prefer? <laughs> I guess you have to be in it to get kicked out, but why kicked out? You want to be a bad boy there, too? No,
2: i it's just stupid. Um but I do, want to, I do want to push the boundaries of what is considered art and what you would see in the Museum of Modern Art. Because, again, I feel like there's a certain type of work that's, like, approved, and then there's a certain type of work that's, like, well, that's not approved. That's not art. And, and that's been also really interesting, seeing people say that about my work. Yeah. It's, you're not an artist. It's not art. And it's just like, what? literally spent a measurable portion of my life drawing pictures and you're saying this is not art like that's an interesting take. So yeah, it's been an interesting, you know, a couple of months here.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you in the museum of Modern art and I'm looking forward to see what happens when you get there. Mike Winkleman, thank you so much for joining me today at the on-air festival and, and having this conversation with me on design matters to see more of Mike's work. You can go to wwwbeeple This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.
0: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down.